Ladies and gentlemen, my fellow Americans, welcome to Death Factory Pod. So people, what do you want? Strangulation, mutilation, cannibalism, gunshot, stabbings, I'll slice, I'll dice, I'll julienne. But before we begin, a word to the parents of our younger listeners. Following podcast will contain scenes of violence not suitable for small children. The rest of you won't be able to take your ears off the app. Hit Factory here. Just Aaron and Carly on the mic again today. And we are talking about a film that is very near and dear to Carly's heart. (laughs) (laughs) And one that I had never seen before. Uh, It's the 1995 Brett Leonard film, Virtuosity. It sure is. Starring Denzel Washington and a pre-fame, pre-LA Confidential, Russell Crowe. Probably one of his first like Hollywood performances. It was indeed. Yeah. Because he did uh, an Australian picture that people speak highly of called Romper Romper Stomper. Stomper. Yeah. What year was that? 92, I think. 92. Okay. Well, coming off the heels of that, this was right before the meteoric rise of Russell Crowe. He would blow people's minds in LA Confidential. He would do it again a couple years later at the end of the decade in Michael Mann's The Insider. And then he would become an Oscar winner and multi-nominee for several years there with Gladiator, A Beautiful Mind, Peter Weir's Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. Got a fantastic write-up in uh, GQ magazine this week, by the way. I'm not sure if you were following along, but Gabriella Paella wrote a fantastic piece on why a certain type of guy loves Master and Commander. Oh, I did see that. It was shared by Russell himself. (gasps) Oh, bless him. Yes, he said, very interesting article here. But I am curious here to know, Carly, because you were the person who told me about this movie initially. I had never heard of it. I assumed most people had kind of forgotten about it. That is until I got online and started talking about it. And there was a very vocal, much larger than anticipated group of people (laughs) who said, this fucking rocks. I love this movie. Super fun. I hope you all are talking about it on the pod. We are indeed. Here we are. But Carly, when did you first see Virtuosity? As soon as it was available on home video. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think... I actually first saw it like playing on TNT or something. And I was like, what the fuck is this? I love this. And then I got my hands on a VHS copy of it um, and watched it in its entirety and fell deeply, madly, viscerally in love with Russell Crowe, <laughs> like unstoppably. That so. sounds about right. <laughs> he's so flipping hot in this movie. Yeah. Um, it's like it. Yeah. It really kind of caught me off guard when I was a child. Um, <laughs> he's very beautiful. They make him very pristine. In this he's movie. gorgeous. And then I saw LA confidential and he just destroyed my life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a life running performance. Him just like kind of rough around the edges. And oh, he's like the wife, buzz cut. The and buzz he's cut like and the lumbering wife around. It's, Oh my God. Um, yeah. So, Anyways, <laughs> I saw this movie um, on my own accord after like catching like, you know, a-, a piece of it on TV and was like totally, totally enthralled by it. As a child, like you think about a movie like this, you're watching it at like, you know, eight years old, nine years old, whatever. And like, of course, it's a movie that would appeal to a child. It's like got incredible set pieces it's wacky. It moves really quickly. We can talk about the pace at some point. There's like a, a pretty like um, intense clip to this film. I was very impressed by the editing. It tries to do, I think, too much too quickly sometimes. I totally agree. But I appreciate its ambitions. Yeah, I, it, it would have been a significantly longer and more kind of trudging movie without it being edited the way it is. But... Th- some of the choices that are being made in post to keep that kineticism, I enjoyed quite a bit. And we'll talk a little bit more about it. So as a kid, I mean, there was just like no reason for me not to love this movie. 
two beautiful men on screen. Yeah, we didn't even mention Denzel yet in your experience with it. Yeah, and like just, you know, as an aside, I will say <laughs> for as many people who like came out of the woodwork and were like, this movie rules, there are, you know, the same amount, if not more, of people who are like, this movie's fucking terrible and so stupid, and I think it's dumb that you like it. And they're wrong, obviously, but there's no way that that's true because even if this movie was stupid, it still has two of our greatest living actors in it. So, like, there's no possible way it could be unworthy of anyone's time. Like, it's sorry, like, if Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe are in a movie together, I don't give a flying fuck what they're doing. I will watch it and it will have merit. It will because they are just people who bring a certain amount of intention and talent to any role in any story, in any context. And that is undeniable. It doesn't matter what happens around them. They have star power and you can't like that doesn't go away when like a story is dumb or whatever. I completely agree. I, you took a bit of umbrage with a follow-up post I made on Twitter when I was uh, mentioning that we had watched this film. I said, even our bullshit used to be better. And I think that you were a little bit uh, irked with my phrasing of that and my choice to call it bullshit. I did not mean that the movie was shit. What I meant was it is of a higher caliber than most of the movies today that have ambitions and pretensions beyond what that movie was trying to do, which was have a good time, get in and out under two hours, tell an interesting story with some cool special effects, get some great actors in front of the camera, chewing up the scenery, get some cool that guys peppering the background. You've got Kevin J. O'Connor, William Forsyth, William Fickner in this. Uh, it is exactly the kind of movie that we don't really get much of anymore. It is the kind of thing that has a head on its shoulders, even though it's kind of doing some dumb guy stuff uh, and attracts good talent to it. And people don't make these kinds of movies in 2023 very often. Uh, we, we're getting one right now that I can think of, which is Adam Driver doing uh, 65, that new movie where he crash lands and kills dinosaurs front of the show bill gobiri says it's worth our time and it's it's interesting that it happened this week because i was thinking about it in relation to virtuosity a movie that is also sturdy and feels somewhat effortless and that i just really enjoyed watching in this high-tech crime prevention facility one man has been recruited to play a simulated game. The objective, to hunt down the ultimate virtual reality killer, Sid 6.7. There's only one problem. The computer changed the program. Now, he's in the real world. He's interactive. On your knees, now! He doesn't enjoy the game unless he's playing against his favorite opponent, and that's me. From the director of Lawnmower Man. He's recreating mass murders. So you're saying Sid's a copycat? Sid 6.7 is intent on improving the original. Denzel Washington. Just because I'm carrying around the joy of killing your family inside me doesn't mean we can't be friends. Virtuosity. Game over. Seeing this movie as a child endeared me to it early. But I think even if I hadn't loved it as a child, it's still a movie that I would love, like, coming to as an adult. It has incredible set pieces. The practical and digital effects are awesome. Really, like, really good. For, for 1995, era. pretty fucking stellar. And the movie does really rely heavily on a lot of practical effects, despite the fact that there are some, you know, uh, squiggly metal things happening, as a lot of <laughs> early 90s movies have, thanks yes. to James Cameron. And And on top of that... It has ideas like it's like trying to do a lot and and it has like ideas about 
artificial intelligence that I think anticipate a lot of anxieties that show up in later movies about artificial intelligence in the late 90s and early 2000s. And it certainly anticipates anxieties we have about artificial intelligence today. Like this movie was talking about AI in a way that I think now we're all really used to, but it was doing so before it was a regular part of our cinematic landscape and definitely before it was a part of our daily, like, real-life landscape. And Russell Crowe's naked in it. And then so, Russell Crowe like, gets naked. He sorry, does. He but. does a butt shot in this. He looks great. He's uh, got a brilliant physique. To your point, we didn't even mention yet that this movie, 1995, summer of 95, I believe. Yeah, like August-ish. Yeah, it's a late summer release. Uh, predates... Strange Days. By a few months. By a few months. Comes out at the end of 1995, which uh, I think that both of these movies are set in the year 1999. They are. Uh, I think. And is Strange Days also in Los Angeles? Strange Days is also in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yep. A lot of like apocalyptic future doomsday uh, narratives take place in 1999 or thereafter Los Angeles because... In the early 90s, everyone believed this place to be hell. Yes. Because it was, honestly. Yeah. It really was. I mean, it It was was completely impoverished and like, uh, you know, thrown into absolute chaos by the American drug trade and an insane amount of gun violence. Yeah. It's I mean, it's the same kind of like neoconservative response to like a crime epidemic as a result of you know, socioeconomic conditions totally just getting flushed down the toilet uh, the same way it was in New York in like the late 70s and the 80s. In fact, along with this anticipating the same fascination with like virtual reality and artificial intelligence that Strange Days does, that The Matrix will do later down the line, that Cronenberg will play with in Existence, it also like 40 minutes into the movie kind of shoehorns in and Escape from New York plot device yes which is another movie that i think it cops heavily from in terms of its kind of like carceral hellscape vision of a modern technologically advanced city this is the thing like i don't understand how anyone could say that this movie is stupid because even if it doesn't land a lot of its ideas like perfectly it still has thoughts about like incarceration in america and like has something to say about it. Like one thing that the movie does really well is kind of flesh out some of the science and technology of the world that these people are living in. And it does something that I think a lot of movies tend to miss, which is that it gives us just enough information about what that technology is and what that science is for us to be like, okay, this feels realized, but it doesn't like spend too much time on it so that you're like overthinking it and it also knows that it's not that type of movie but there are a couple of like key moments that take place in a prison in the opening like 20 minutes of this film that say a lot about what being incarcerated in America meant and and still means and like it's not pulling punches like The opening shots are a a pursuit and we find out quickly that we're in a a virtual reality setting Um, and it's a program meant to sort of help uh, police officers um, catch criminals. And when we break out of the simulation, we see two people uh, ostensibly getting their brains fried in a chair and we learn very quickly that those two people are prisoners. Yeah. And so this movie is like nodding at the fact that like we use prisoners for not just for prison labor, but also for experimentation and like in all of these nefarious ways where it's like, oh, we need to like test some shit. Like, yeah, let's throw some prisoners at this thing. And as a society, we're meant to watch that and be like, well, yeah, of course we'd use them as like guinea pigs because they don't matter. Right. They're like social detritus. They're run off that like we don't have to worry about anymore. But casting Denzel as one of those prisoners, now he's an ex-cop, so like it's sort of written into his character that he's not like the other prisoners, right? His backstory is interesting. There's some 
cool stuff happening there, but it is like, you know, not like other girls kind of situation (laughs) happening. But he's a prisoner. And I think the fact that Denzel is cast as one of the felons is is meant to make us sort of second guess like how they're treating these people. Um, And Billy from Ally McBeal. I can't remember the actor's name um, is is his sidekick. And and he basically gets summarily fried right. in this virtual reality simulation. And that's when Denzel's like, if you die in the virtuosity, you die here. And William Forsyth is like, the body cannot live without the mind. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. But I mean, it- they, they sort of have that conversation. <laughs> but my point is that like. There are several moments just in the 20 for opening 20 minutes of the film that show us kind of the landscape of carceral America in, you know, this future 1999 Los Angeles. The things that it's showing us have a lot to say about what being imprisoned in America is is about and and how we utilize this population of people. And like, I don't think this is a political movie, but I think the fact that it has a lot of these elements reveals a lot about the political landscape of America, Yeah, which is like why we talk about these films, right? Like even movies that aren't overtly political still like, you know, illuminate a political posture of the moment. And I think this is absolutely one of those movies. I would say these kinds of movies do that more so than certain other types of movies. Ones that we've talked about on the show before that are like a little more maybe with it or a little bit more progressive ones that align with our political persuasions more in 2023 than they did in like 1996. Oftentimes revealed to us something about the fact that there was this undercurrent of a leftist doctrine of belief during that period of time, which is always interesting is always like oh yeah isn't that cool that like there's a continuum there but it's these kinds of movies these more kind of like middleweight movies the mid-budget kind of stuff that has like compelling stories and good actors in it but is very sort of set in our society and our our existence at the time in the sort of in the 90s specifically kind of in like the mid 90s as we have like baked over into like real end of history territory that you start to see the contours of the like socio-political landscape of the era and say like oh man like this is what was going on like this was the tenor of the conversation and yeah i mean this movie does that it's what makes it worthwhile to me it's why it's still interesting as a watch and as we mentioned with all those other movies that like it's either aping or you know playing alongside like it's in the same sandbox as a lot of really good shit you know if you like the matrix if you like strange days if you like escape from new york hell even if you like you know fucking la confidential you're gonna like some of what's going on here because of the people involved in it and the kind of story it's trying to tell there's an early scene between Denzel Washington and a woman who would later become his sidekick, um, who is a psychiatrist. Like, what is she? She's like a criminal psychologist. She's a or something. criminal psychologist, and I, I want to point out because I was I was going to go to this uh, scene as well, but the infatuation of the era, a lot like what we talked about in last week's episode on Deep Cover, this sort of fixation on psychologizing criminality and like finding you know almost like a phrenological sort of like map of what leads people to be murderous in society is totally on display in this movie too yeah the early 90s was obsessed with this idea of like uh the psychological mapping of a criminal because it was like phrenology like 3.0 it was like a, a more sort of like you know liberalized take on this idea that some people are like fundamentally corrupt and oh look we can like map the things that tell us they're corrupt yep. um it's all a bunch of horse shit uh but it shows up in a lot of movies of the time and and it shows up in this one and again denzel is cast in this role to frustrate those those narratives right not we had this conversation on the deep cover episode that you know and it's funny to see this scene paired up with Uh, a scene at the beginning of Deep Cover with Charles Martin Smith where both of them talk about their psychological profiles 
And with someone like a Lawrence Fishburne, uh, there's that conversation of you score the same as a criminal. And in this movie, Denzel's doing work and the script is doing work to run counter to that perception. There's a, a really good line where Kelly Lynch, the psychologist, says or asks the question, were you attracted to violence as a child? And Denzel says, you bet. Three Stooges, Wiley Coyote. Every time the Roadrunner smash Wiley Coyote, I... Mm. And that's like that's his answer to that question. Yeah. He's like, are you fucking idiot? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It seems like this that... I mean, I'm going to be saying this the entire episode. But it seems like this that make me like know that this movie is not a piece of shit. I already knew that just because of the top billing. But also like... This is a two minute like throwaway scene and it's like utterly gripping. <laughs> it's like these two people whom we haven't seen interact on screen together yet, Denzel and this criminal psychologist, and they're meant to have like some sort of like sexual tension. It's not really believable, but like it is because Denzel Washington is Denzel Washington. But they have this moment where he's like, reaching for a pen and paper and he touches her hand and like there's not a ton of dialogue between the two of them in this scene but it's totally enthralling and it and it, it sets up this momentum of the rest of the movie that I think is really important because this scene to me is like the establishment of like okay this movie is is doing more than other films like it like it's doing more than like a demolition man which is another movie i kept thinking about when we were watching this it, uh, demolition man is definitely another one that this cops from that i was thinking about and, and i hadn't even picked up on that i would say that people would argue that maybe that's a better movie but i think that these two are of equal caliber in terms of the things on their mind and the way that they're playing around with them uh and yeah that scene is really really good just moments before that scene we get uh denzel getting into a fight with another group of prisoners um, because they're part of like the aryan gang in the prison and the guy who was killed in the vr simulation in the opening scene uh was killed and they they think he's responsible well and he's also a former cop right which the rest of the prison population is not fond of and they keep calling him like there are all these like shouts from the rafters and they're like killer and i'm like fucking all you guys are you're killers. all you're like, all murderers <laughs> yeah Shut up. and i think it's specifically because like he's a cop who murdered like another criminal and there's like some there's it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the movie totally. like the weird like allegiances to like one side of good or bad and who's right and wrong to kill etc uh but at the end of the fight, it's getting like broken up and he's like doing his kind of like chest beating, like shouting sort of thing, like Denzel intensity that like echoes or rather uh, will be echoed uh, in the, the King Kong scene in Training Day. Correct. And like, I don't know that I can think of a movie prior to this where he gets that level of intensity or is allowed to kind of get that kind of like screaming ferocity sort of Denzel out. Um, and so it's cool to see it here and be like, oh yeah, I recognize that. That's uh, that's Alonzo. Another interesting tidbit of this. I actually read that over the course of filming, Denzel uh, had his fingers all over the script and was reshaping the story and retooling it alongside Brett Leonard the entire time and there was a love story between Parker Barnes and Kelly Lynch Denzel's character and the criminal psychologist that Denzel dissuaded them from pursuing in the story cut out the scenes in which they had like any sort of romantic attraction except for just a couple hints of it yeah Denzel has uh has spoken many times about the fact that um when he was doing a ton of work in the early 90s um, and there were a lot of scripts that wanted to pair him up with a white love interest mm -hmm. he absolutely wouldn't because he knew that it would upset his his main demographic his main demographic and and this came up on pelican brief as well 
um, right. with Julia Roberts. Um, so I was actually even surprised to see that they left in that little finger because I know I know that to be true about Denzel and his and the role that he played in the sexual tension and love interest that he had in movies. He was really hands on about it because he he was being strategic. Yeah, he starts to frustrate and complicate his perception, I think, publicly really just after our decade that we cover here with, you know, Alonzo and Training Day. But then he goes on immediately to do like John Creasy in Man on Fire. Um, I think about him in Flight as well. One of my favorite of of his performances of the last like 15, 20 years. Um, Just really, really good stuff. Um, But let's talk about the other key performance in this movie because I feel like once we get into this, it will be a significant portion of our conversation. Uh, Sir Russell Crowe. Australian actor. Citizen of Rome. Citizen of Rome. No, they did give him like an honorary like key to the city because they know like he's a fucking gladiator. Because he's like, Maximus. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. he. Li- I mean, he lives in Italy. Does he really? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, it fucking rules. That that's why he's become kind of like um a sturdy boy, I imagine. He's just he's eating well, he's living life, he's enjoying himself. I hope Russell Crowe is very happy. Oh, he me too. Late stage Russell Crowe is like makes me just as happy if not happier as like early stage Russell Crowe, but like for very different reasons. He's also just like a genuinely like good and nice guy like you hear like stories about him on set or like you know stories about him just like out and about like in Rome like just like being really nice to random people or like I don't know like he's like always really excited to be like at the forum or the coliseum with his kids (laughs) he's like look at me and my seven kids we're all having a great time playing in ruins like he just he rocks you have gotten in trouble before with friends and acquaintances for claiming that this is Russell Crowe's best performance. Look, (laughs) (laughs) if you'll permit me. Absolutely. The Insider and Ellie Confidential are patently two of my favorite movies in the history of cinema. Full stop. Literally two of my favorite movies. They're fantastic movies. I think two of the best movies ever made. My argument here is not that the role of Sid 6.7 is, say, uh, a heftier or more um, dramatically important role than, say, that of Maximus or Buzz in L.A. Confidential. Okay. But that this role requires him to do a lot more and a lot of different kinds of things than those other more dramatic roles require of him. Hmm. He has to be a thing that isn't human. And he's a human being. <laughs> so like... He has to be a robot. It's really... He doesn't even just have to be a robot. He has to be a program. I don't want to get into like, you know, the hierarchies of like playing artificial intelligence. <laughs> but that strikes me as as quite a bit harder to to portray and my point is that he plays this character in such a way that I never once question that he is a computer program and that's fucking hard like when you're a human being made of flesh and blood and you look and sound and smell and move like a human being made of flesh and blood it takes a lot of work to erase all of that, to neutralize all of that and actually exist in such a way to be believable as something that is cyber. And he does it and he does it effortlessly. And I think that that deserves way more credit than it than it gets. And like, I don't know, I just think that's marvelous. And I find that to be really impressive because I don't know a lot of dramatic actors of his caliber who could do the like insider thing and then also do this I'm a computer program thing. Like try to picture like Tom Hanks doing that. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Tom Hanks doesn't would not do something like this very well at all. No. But that's my point. Like there are there are a ton of incredible dramatic actors. Russell Crowe is one of them. I mean, you don't have to look very far. Even Denzel Washington would probably not be able to do the six uh, Sid six point seven. One hundred percent. No way. It's Absolutely just, it's no just way. It's not within his wheelhouse. There are details to his performance that are just immaculate. He has these little sort of like eye movements that he makes. He widens his eyes sometimes. He has sort of like a smile that just engages like half of his face. Like there's just like so much shit that he's doing that if you really pay attention to it, you're like, I'm sorry. This is like maybe an Oscar worthy performance. He's having the time of his life doing it. He's a relative unknown. It's not like, you know, a guy who has nothing left to prove just getting to like throw everything at the wall and have a blast. Like he's early in his career and he's doing something really interesting. And he's uh, playing opposite one of the greatest actors of of the moment and certainly of our generation. Yes, absolutely. And he will become one of the best actors of his generation, certainly, um, and, and, and be known as that. He's already that in 1995. Uh, but... You're right. Like in that first opening, like VR simulation with Denzel and him in the sushi restaurant, there was an uncanniness to it that I was finding frustrating at first where I was like, I can't fucking clock what he's doing. I can't pick up whether or not he's doing an accent, like what's the voice he's doing. And then I started to realize over the course of the movie that he is changing sometimes within his own sort of monologues, his intonation, his speech patterns. His accent shifts ever so slightly and he's doing it because he's supposed to be this like schizophrenic program. You know, he's got like Hitler and John Wayne Gacy and Charles Manson and the guy who killed Denzel's wife in there. Shot at the guy 30 or 40 times. How the hell I don't care. Those are real people out there. Look, you either control yourself or you're going back in the box. Well, I'm sorry, Billy. All right. Shoot me. I mean, granted, this is not a game, but Sid is still from the game and there's no way I can catch him if I'm in a penitentiary. Matthew Grimes is a part of Sid 6.7. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Last night, Sid tried taunting me, just like Grimes used to do. Look, take a look at this. We don't know that he's the dominant. No, I know. I know. That's how I know, because I know. Maybe that's what Sid wants you to think. Push you over the edge, make you slip up. <laughs> Sid did not push me over the edge, and I did not slip up. Take a look at this. Now, this is Sid from the media zone last night, taken from their own recordings. They can't get enough of himself. And he's going to want more of this. He's going to want more victims. He's going to want bigger events. He's going to want more coverage, just like Matthew Grimes. Matthew Grimes was a political terrorist whose specialty was bombing populated targets. Any mass expression of democracy, anywhere where there can be a whole lot of people that can die and it can be recorded by the news media live. For the record, I want it known that this behavior was never part of his original programming. Sid 6.7 isn't bound by programming anymore. What does that mean? In the real world, he's free of any behavioral limits he might have had in virtual reality. He's evolving. My God. He's evolving. Into what? The other thing that I think is really remarkable about his performance is that Sid, we know, is an interactive program. It's built into his algorithms that he must engage with his antagonist. So when he moves from the virtual world to the real world, that escalates even further because he has so much more to play with. He has all of these inputs, but he still requires interactivity. And it's one of the things that makes us sort of like tired trope in this kind of like cat and mouse like cop and robber story work in a fresh way yeah because there's usually a moment when like the villain is like ah see like i don't exist without you it's it's a joker batman situation totally he even has a like bright purple suit at one point in this movie he has a bright green suit too he does it's uh one of our friends uh Clay Williams of Exit of the 2010s, I think, even said about this movie that, like, it makes a compelling case for Crow as, like, a Schumacher Batman villain. I think he's 100% right. It was the first thing I thought of when he was having those conversations about, like, you you complete me. Like, 
You know, I, I'm not who I am without you. You bring this out in me. It's one of the reasons I love this movie. It takes a lot. It takes a really well-tread kind of stale story of like the rehabilitated cop like comes out of retirement to fight the villain that only he can fight. Right. Like we all know that story. Yeah. But it adds this sort of fresh layer of cyber life to it and and like the specter of technology that makes a lot of these themes that exist in this really you know well-tread territory new and exciting again and actually like sort of revitalizes them in a way that makes sense for the film that you're watching yeah well and it makes the character of Sid solidify over the course of the movie and it's what makes him ultimately beatable which adds an interesting thematic kind of ripple to it all, which is, you know, you mentioned Sid has to play the game against his antagonist, against like whoever it is that is in the scenario with him. And he recognizes very quickly that that is Parker Barnes. That's Denzel Washington's character. And so in order to adapt to what he needs to be as an antagonist, he starts to take on more characteristics of, uh, Grimes. I don't, I don't remember the character. Matthew Grimes. Claire Boucher Grimes. Uh, before we get into the real world, there is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, which has some of those fantastic practical and digital effects that we've already mentioned. It's the birth of Sid 6.7 into his nano exterior. Uh, and it's got Steven Spinella, who's like his programmer, who's a really weird character in this. You can never He's quite so weird you can't, in this movie. You can't quite clock him. He's like again, like in uh, Deep Cover last week, a weird guy who's like kind of villainous, who's like definitely queer quoted in a lot of ways, or at least like kind of like nebulous and like asexual. Like he doesn't seem to have like the same dispositions and. Uh, sort of he's not intoxicated by like the the Sheila program right like the lusty like lady who's like coming on to Kevin J O'Connor's character no he has purely scientific ambitions that's right yeah but he he's a weirdo and then Kevin J O'Connor's in this scene as well um, people remember him as maybe like Benny from the mummy uh in, oh, in right. yes uh he's also in there will be blood he's the guy who uh is maybe maybe not Daniel Day-Lewis's brother in the movie that he kills. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, but so like in this scene, Kevin J. O'Connor is explaining the nanobots and the way that they work and has this weird like nanobot like virtual snake that he cuts the tail off of. And one of the first maybe like genuinely inspired details in the movie that the nanobots revitalize and regenerate themselves through glass particles because they're silicon based because they're silicon. again the thing that you're talking about which is like just enough science hokum in there for you that it like makes it, sense. it I'm makes like, sense okay yeah yeah and it makes it fucking cool because once we pull russell crowe into the real world i mean there's fucking glass everywhere mm -hmm. and so at any given point like he can denzel can put like 15 bullets in him he can lop off an arm he can cut him straight in half and throw him through a window and then he just has these you know blue tentacles come out and suck up all the glass around him and they edit it they uh and they animate it really well too like the way that it kind of chews through and makes these you know sort of snowy holes in the glass this is a cool scene this is a really cool scene there's another really great scene that just like blew me away as a kid. Like I remember watching it and being like, movies! And it's the scene when Denzel and Sid have been, uh, you know, in pursuit of one another, sort of like fighting. And Denzel's character uh, throws Sid through some glass and he falls several stories. And... When we see Sid on the ground, he's in pieces and he's disembodied. His head is sort of like, you know, off to the side. And he has giant shards of glass sticking out of him. Like these huge shards of glass. He's got, you know, his leg is over here. He's got his blue, like, metallic blood everywhere. And then he starts to regenerate and it's a sight to behold. It is 
incredible movie making. I mean, the practical effects in this scene are are stunning, but it is this image that like I I I watched as a child and it just like was carved into my brain this image of Sid and his blue blood all over his face and these shards of glass sticking up out of his neck and I just remember being like I have no idea how they did this but it's fucking amazing and I can't stop looking at it and also like it's horrifying it's impressive (laughs) uh, even today like it is the image that has stuck with me and I found like a photo of it, you know, and and shared it online. And it's like, this is the one that is like super fucking eye catching along with Steven Spinella standing in front of like the giant screen of Russell Crowe's face with the like the pods, like the chairs in front of him and everything. Yeah, that is one of the moments like visually that I think of the most. One of the other ones is what I think is maybe the most inspired sequence in the entire film, which is when Sid goes to the like cyberpunk dance club. It's not exactly the opening of Blade or anything like that, but coincidentally, Tracy Lords happens to be the person performing one of her own songs in this, and she is in that scene in Blade. She's the vampire who lures in the guy. It's like poetry. It rhymes here, but that scene is awesome. Like it's like a very kind of futuristic, every, everything is stainless steel and silver and everyone's in very kind of like, uh, like cyberpunky retro futurist sort of outfits. They've got the like girls walking around with like the, uh, like infrared cameras that are displaying people on the screens and the DJs with the cool, like theremin style, like touch electronics. Uh, and then Crow just starts shooting the fucking place up and has a wonderful moment that they shoot very well uh, where he is essentially DJing, uh, but he has pre-programmed and is now sampling all of the like screams and cries and whimpers of the audience that he's now holding hostage over like a, a, a four on the floor beat and some electric guitar samples. It's really fun. He's recording his symphony live. Like he is making people scream so that he can capture the sample and then do the mix yeah. <laughs> and play it like, you know, in this in this sort of uh, terrifying symphony of, of horror. It's a it's a sequence that I think were it done by anyone else like it wouldn't it really wouldn't have worked, but it does. And you're kind of like watching it and like aware of the fact that it's working in spite of itself (laughs) yes totally it's like it's so goofy but he's committed to it he's owning it he's having fun with it this is a detail i noticed on a rewatch recently of this scene because i wanted to see it again it is either a mistake and something that maybe mr crow was embarrassed about or just you know a a real like method commitment to the bit uh, but he's rocking like a pretty, pr- like pretty substantial bulge in the scene too. And I was like, it would be really funny if like he decided that for the purpose of this character, he was going to be like semi erect while he was murdering people. No, I think there are a couple times when I definitely noticed his, his package. Yeah. And I'm, I think two things. I think without a doubt, Russell Crowe has a huge penis. Like he just for sure does. He's got a big rig. Um, but I also think that it wouldn't surprise me if he decided that like Sid should be like semi erect when he is committing acts of violence, especially when he's surrounded by TV screens of his, of his visage, because we know, uh, because they tell us, but also he shows us quite clearly uh, he's a modern day narcissist. He is absolutely enthralled with his own his own image and um and really like requires an audience and a reflection uh of himself back to him in order to perform. So like I don't know, it's it's not beyond the pale to me to think that like Russell Crowe would like, you know, make sure that like he had some some stuff in there. He to- was just like fluffing his hog before he got on to the yeah set. or he just like 
put a cup in there and was like, he's going to be, he's going to have a bulge right now. Just wrap the sock around yeah. it or something. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you know, I, he's just got to have my rig showing for this one. Got to like make sure it's all hanging out if I'm going to do this right. I mean, that's what turns it on quite literally. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, like you said, I, I, I if it's incidental, if it's an accident that just happened to be captured on camera, fine. But it does work in favor of the character in a way that I think is really compelling totally and actually does. really fun. Um, and so throughout the rest of this movie, Sid is just finding increasingly public and uh, like mass appeal spaces where he can do his murdering. Uh, the club works better, I think, than the like weird UFC fight kind of rings. I think it's still fun, but there's like, the crowd all in unison, like along with the beat, like chanting kapow for some reason. Yeah. That's really silly. Um, but but that scene is still pretty fun. He's like throwing people off of balconies and things like that. He doesn't actually fight anyone in that scene. No, he doesn't. It's a weird like interlude that felt like it sort of fizzled for me. It's okay because we we have enough of those moments of him kind of running amok and uh and holding an audience hostage literally that like i was like sure whatever move on the the climactic sequence of him you know on this live broadcast that he takes over mm -hmm. i think is the one that maybe is like the messiest of all of them yeah but also i think has the most to say definitely prefaced by the way by a debate like a fox news style like talking head like either side of the table debate about immigration about closing the borders yes <laughs> and we we start that scene with like a a tracking shot over a crowd that is outside the broadcast building chanting close those borders <laughs> It's nuts. Yeah. And then like the person that they're interviewing as like the counter is a, an indigenous man of some sort mm -hmm. who's basically like he makes some argument about the Puritans is like, like if we had closed the, the borders to what and I'm like, you yeah. don't need to do that, buddy. But it's it's a pretty like common rhetorical like it's you know sort of rebuttal, but yeah uh, an indigenous person would not be making that argument about why that should be the reason we keep the borders over open but, but it's okay it's it's that kind of script but that this is in the movie is indicative of the fact that this was an issue that was very top of mind in america at the time there was legislation passed under clinton i think the year prior um that was you know uh, for all intents and purposes, like a border enforcement program yeah. um, and a doubling down of efforts to deter migration into the U.S. from Mexico. Right. Alongside NAFTA. Alongside NAFTA. So like, let's, you know, utilize the labor in those countries and then not let them get in here. Right. But this was a, an issue that was top of mind. And I think like that it's in this movie is important and notable. But what I think is more interesting about this scene is, is what happens after, which is a sequence that I think also illustrates a topic that was, you know, in sort of the societal conversation at the time, which is like America's obsession with violence yeah. in media. Mm-hmm. Sid takes over this live broadcast. He's streaming to, you know, millions of homes all over America. And there's this, uh, you know, data visualization in, um, in the scene that shows him like how many people are tuning in and what demographics and how, how old they are and where they're, where they're tuning in from. And it's, you know, these like bar graphs basically that are like, this many people are watching right now and they go up and down when you do this or that. It's kind of like hokey. Yeah. But it is saying something like, I think like you kind of like rolled your eyes when like that, like data visualization piece came up. I, and I, I was rolled like, my eyes because it was the same data visualization. Like it was the same animation, like four separate times in the movie. But the point of it is well received, even if it's ham fisted. I think the point of it is important. And like it's there to be like a very literal manifestation of like Americans appetite for violence and do so in a way that's almost like that comes off as almost satirical. Mm -hmm. um, but Sid 
you know, starts broadcasting death TV and he's basically like, I'm going to start, you know, live executions. What do you want? Call in, order it up, whatever you want. Like I'll deliver it to you. It's like peak consumerism in America, right? Like on demand, whatever kind of violence you want, uh, you can order it off a menu just like you would at fucking McDonald's. Hey buddy, how's the wife and kid? Still dead, huh? That's reality for you. No saving, no resetting. You killed him, Barnsey. Just like that bitch on the train. You got too greedy. You let before you look. You reached your old arm in there and... Boom! Boom! <laughs> Come on. Just because I'm carrying around the joy of killing your family inside me doesn't mean we can't be friends. And so, like, for all of this, all of the faults that are in this sequence, I think that it has a lot to say. And I like that it's just trying stuff. You know, this was one of those moments where I was, like, watching this now in 2023. And I was thinking about, like, the conversation at the time very much being, like, there's too much violence on TV and, like kids are you know playing video games and like learning right. to kill people and like whatever all the tipper gore stuff around like explicit lyrics of violence and hip-hop right and the video games and the movies and television like all the stuff that would continue and then erupt after columbine in 99 and what i think this movie says unintentionally is what is a conclusion that like a lot of us have come to in the last 30 years which is that it's not that violence is like in media it's that violence is like such a, a a readily available and like quotidian part of American life like that Sid is an amalgam of serial killers and that he's running rampant and able to get his hands on guns very easily and like you know do all of these things is is like ultimately saying like that's the kind of country we live in yeah absolutely and, and it, i don't think that the movie is like trying to say that but i think that that's like what it ends up saying anyway he kind of says it though like there is a part and and granted it's much more sort of like about an argument for like violence as intrinsic to humanity, right? Like, and and we're not meant to necessarily believe it, right? It, we're kind of supposed to defy that persuasion because of Denzel's character and because of what happens in the movie and who's saying the words. But he has a moment on Death TV where he says, Sid says something like, you all need to understand that killing is part of your nature, that it is one of the most human things that we can do is like kill people. He also has another great line that I think is really important to understanding sort of like, you know, what it means to live in America, which is that he says, what I am is not my fault. I exist because of how you are. Yes. Yeah. I think that's even like one of the same moments in the, in the film, like in that kind of grand long speech that is death TV. Uh, yeah. And he's, I mean, ultimately he's right, right? He's like, he's programmed with the personalities of actual people. And so, yeah, you know, it's it's a thing in the movie where you get into that kind of, like, ontological idea of, like, good and evil actually existing. That was very 90s. But you're right that, like, watching it with a 2023 lens, you recognize it to be inadvertently a statement about the way that violence becomes an attractive outlet within... This, the political conditions of America that we have created and that that is something that is a like direct response to the kind of culture that we bred, not least of which because of the carceral system and because of policing, uh, you know, like it, it's not explicitly said, but it is interesting that this movie presumes that the two main things that we will use artificial intelligence and VR for are sex and training cops and those are our two options 
So the movie ends up having those textures in it and saying more than you initially think it it is on just a, a very topical first watch of it. And, you know, those are the things we use artificial intelligence for. Yeah. That and like, you know, random, like write this email for me. I don't feel like writing it. Yeah. Chat chat bot i was thinking about that with steven spinella is like he's the guy who like freaks out about the singularity after talking to the chat bot for like 20 minutes kevin Roos. <laughs> yes yeah yeah i think it's really interesting now that we have all of these like you know corporate media journalists who are afraid of artificial intelligence but for all the wrong reasons like not because it signals how how much this society devalues that which makes us human. Um, but because like, you know, this chat bot told this guy to leave his wife or whatever. Like, it's <laughs> just like so dumb. But, but this movie does, you know, represent an anxiety that I think um, has kind of been perverted since then. I think there's like this strange sort of, obsession with AI now that like looked and felt different in the 90s and the early aughts and I think the obsession with AI now is coming more from a place of like hopelessness rather than like optimism about like potential and like what is possible even though I think we like to wrap it in that rhetoric still it feels more like the obsession with AI is is coming from a place of um, reckoning with our our futurelessness and sort of realizing like there's nothing left like this this is this is the next thing and this is all that there is yeah and I mean like you know even Just further alienating everyone from one another com- and completely yeah like humanity all, all we're using AI for now is just like fucking you know apps called like blinker without an e in it where you know it just tells your boss like how often your eyes are like actually on an email or something right right? or like making sure that like you read fast enough or something it's just about the immiseration like you said of human capital like it, it was the idea that artificial intelligence was going to produce human obsolescence and now what it feels like is really just like we're never going to get to that point because like we're not going to be around long enough to see that like the oceans are going to rise and we're all going to burn up and things are going to blow up way before that happens and so all ai is capable of doing now is just suffocating our work environments to push us to be more productive to be you know better wage slaves uh to collapse any sort of possibility of artistic expression or making a living, you yep. know, doing artistic expression. Yep. You know, AIs that can like write a better pop song than Miley Cyrus that can. Or, or like write a better article. Right. Or can do a better David Cronenberg movie than David Cronenberg can make, which yep. n- none of them can. But there are people out there championing this technology and touting the fact that it it will or that it already is. And that's not quite on display yet in virtuosity. But it is certainly concerned with the technological and where that can go and what it means to have like a human error and a fundamental flaw in the programming of something well and i think everything about living today is about like suppressing those things that make us human like it's about like further alienation it's about you know disconnection from people it's like more individualizing, more abstracting of your experience and the things that make you human, those things aren't valued. And in virtuosity, you can argue that the ultimate statement is the triumph of the real, of the assertion of the carnal yet again. It is... It's like Michael Mann's Black Hat in that way, where the <laughs> you fucking cl- love that movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. Okay, it's fantastic. If you haven't seen Black Hat, watch Black Hat. Black Hat is your my virtuosity. Black Hat is my your is your my virtue. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, of course. Um, that that is what it is. And in that movie and in this movie. 
there is a defiance of the assimilation within the virtual. And interestingly enough, in this movie, it's done in a kind of semi-ironic way in which they plug Sid back into the VR without him realizing it. And so they are able to learn his master plan by subduing him and then trapping him back inside the virtual. It becomes a prison yet again for him, right? And the movie says VR is a prison and it isn't the real world. And then Denzel gets to use that metal arm that like is there for no like real reason (laughs) except like so that he can have a metal arm at the end. I I will say this about it. We talked a little bit about already like, you know, the, the way the movie's kind of paced and edited. I like that there are some scenes here where we just see the aftermath of the murders. Like they're constantly kind of on Sid's tail for yeah. a part of the movie. Mm-hmm. And it, it keeps the, like you would think that the movie would move faster. Maybe if we got to see some of those like grisslier moments, but the fact that we don't actually, I think makes the film rhythmically more sound. Uh, but there is a flashback scene in which Denzel gets blowed up. His family gets blowed up. Uh, and like a one-armed Denzel covered in like blood and soot all over his face and body takes an Uzi through like a terrorist dungeon and shoots up all these guys and then kills a camera crew by accident because like they're there interviewing a terrorist in a dungeon. I don't know why. You, usually those guys have to make like their own home movies, but they yeah. had a, they had a, a news crew <laughs> in there for whatever reason. But... That scene is startling in its like visceralness. There's even some like POV handheld stuff where you see like the muzzle flashes from the Uzi yep. and cuts really rapidly as like he kills the camera crew. It's some of the the most like visually arresting stuff in the movie. Yeah, that scene fucking goes. It goes. And like it's moments like that and like the club scene that make this movie better than it needs to be. Two of our greatest living actors, incredible practical effects, great costuming, some great digital effects, lots of things to say about technology, incarceration, the police landscape of 90s Los Angeles. Like, there's so much in this movie. I cannot stand another person telling me that it's (laughs) stupid. So if you are a listener of this show, first time, long time, last time what the fuck ever and you feel so compelled as to reach out to carly or reply to one of her many extolling posts about virtuosity virtuosity. to tell her that you don't care for this movie all that much you should you should you're gonna get fucking blocked is probably what's gonna end up happening here just tell me how great this movie is and tell me why you liked it i, I think that's a more interesting conversation you know just what saying something's dumb the numbers ultimately will reveal but i will say people were very excited to hear that we were talking about this because i fucking recently. know what i'm talking about man you pick good ones i like i'm not wrong here i'm i'm like there are times when i'm wrong it doesn't happen often but there are times when I'm wrong about stuff. I'm keeping a list of it, in fact. I know. <laughs> You'll read it at my funeral. <laughs> I will not. I promise. I'm not actually keeping a list. Um, But I'm not wrong about this. No. And I don't care what anyone says about anything. At the end of the day, Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe are in this movie. Yeah. Period. There's also a scene of Denzel flashing back to finger painting with his daughter while doing like caveman chalk drawings really close on like the floor and walls of his prison cell set to a Peter Gabriel song. Yeah. Party man, which <laughs> is my cocaine like that. That is for me just this chef's This movie kiss. has something for everyone. Has something for everyone. And like it starts with a black grape song. Like the we, we didn't even talk about the soundtrack to this with all this like very cool like you know, like house and like trip hop shit going on. Like Black Grape are on here. Juno Reactor. Tricky is on here for Massive Attack as well. Um, and you get some of that kind of like futuristic, you know, like trancey kind of stuff in the in the credits right as it cuts. And it slowly 
fades back into party man, Peter Gabriel at the end. Uh, All for you. It's great for me. It's a little something for everybody in this movie. Some might say, this movie's doing too much. They can't be doing all this right. (laughs) They're trying, and they succeed more often than they fail. Look, shut up and watch Virtuosity. Shut the fuck up. Go watch Virtuosity. No, I'm not swearing at anyone. I'm swearing at people. That's on me. (laughs) Shut up. Go watch Virtuosity. Follow along with the show. Hit Factory Pod. Subscribe for bi-weekly bonus content patreon.com slash hit factory pod shout out to our overlords linda jesse k jared murray thank you all so much for your support we will catch you all the next time up upon this tower, looking at the street lights all spread out like a So sorry Only when I'm moving No direction chosen Rolling over emotion Guess I'm your party man I'm a party man I'm a party man I'm your